you wanna learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7, Brave New Radio. We got managers, producers, record labels, concert promoters galore. Wednesday at 8 p.m. Yes, yes. We're listening to Music Bids 101 and more at Brave New Radio. Greatest radio station in the history of radio. Is that not true, Dr. Esteban Marconi? It's a special day today, isn't it? It's a very special day. Why is it a special day? Because we have Dave Laurie. We have Dave Laurie, the guest of all guests. Right. You know, this is Dave Laurie's, uh, he ties the record for most visits to Music Biz 101 and more. This will be his third visit yes. with us. And we should tell people Dave Laurie is the author of the book, From Hallelujah to Goodbye. To the last goodbye. From Hallelujah to the last goodbye, which is the story of his uh, interactions managing Jeff Buckley. And Dave was with us three or four years ago, just one of our first guests, when we yes. talked about all the things that you did, and we recommend people going to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. And then when you were co-managing Lons Pierce a couple of years ago, you were in, and you did a radio show appearance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and speak closer to the mic, by the way. When you and I've been here a few other times with Rob Quick. Oh, that's right. You, uh, when this airs, you will have been with uh, World Cafe, an interview about I the book. I just and- finished taping World Cafe, which comes out May 4th. And uh, I did uh, actually getting ready to do a hundred over 100 stations satellite tour with Clear Channel. Wow. I, I taped that on, uh, uh, that's going to run the week the book's out. Great. And, we're, and the book... So Rob actually did an interview that's airing next week in April uh, to over 90 college radio stations. Okay, that's really National cool. Record Store Week. And we should tell people that this is... Uh, we're pre-recording this, that's so right. we're talking about the future. What's wrong? Rob's interview is airing tomorrow. Okay. Oh, yeah? Okay. So uh, if you heard in the background, that was Ashley Weltner, our engineer, who we have not said hello to. And that's her way of saying, what about me? What about me? Hi, Ashley. Ashley Weltner, everybody. <laughs> The engineer. We haven't said that I'm your professor, David Kirk Philpin. This is your professor, Dr. Esteban. Marconi. That's right. And we haven't said that you're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. We'll get back to Dave Laurie in two seconds mm-hmm. so that we can spend the next we five minutes talking about it. Yeah, we got so carried away because he's such no. a special guest. We, did we mention this his third time on the show? I think no, we did. No, I don't think we did. Hey, if you're listening to this and you are, go to musicbiz101wp.com, sign up for our newsletter, read all about our stuff. And by the way, this summer, I'm going to revamp our website. Wow. It is not mobile friendly, as mobile friendly and I was, as I would like, and so that is one of my summer projects, revamping mm-hmm. that musicbiz101wp.com. Also, follow us on the Instagram, the Twitter, the face of the book, at musicbiz101wp. We already told you about the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. We should give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne Bruno Inc. and White Hat mm-hmm. Management. With artists like Charlie Puff, Dave Mashiaths, Kith, there's only one place to go for your band's business management, and that would be VB. CPA.com. But you go when you're ready. Don't get forced there by Brandine Bruno and White Hat Management. Go when it's best for you. That's right. They're going to try and strong arm you. Don't go for that. Mm-hmm. I would not be strong armed by those gentlemen. Now, 
I'll go when it's best for me. And then we should give our thanks to Christine Oyve, who is a wealth manager and the president of Oyve Wealth Management. Mm -hmm. Christine has helped many of our professionals at William Patterson University to manage their investments and plan out their retirement. If somebody like you is looking for some guidance on how to plan for your retirement, or if you have questions on anything from investments and portfolio management to insurance and retirement planning, you, of all people, you should give Christine a call at Dave Laurie. Will you repeat after me, please? 732 732 455 455 1510. 1510. You can also email her, Dr. Esteban, Christine at. Oi. Vaywealth.com for advisement. V, the V is V A Y, by the That's way. That's right. And there's, leave the last oi off for savings. That's there right. There we go. We want to give a shout out real quick to Sprint, Ruby's Travel, Columbia Bank, who helped us big time at a big time 80s show we did back in April. And we just have to keep thanking them because without them, we would not have been able to raise over $12,000 for music scholarships here at William Patterson University. We also should, should remind you there are books out besides Dave Laurie's book, which we talked about and we will continue to talk about. There's also Managing Your Band, 6th edition, which came out June 6th. And soon, as you listen to this, will be out for a year. Mm-hmm. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Backwing store.com and that book did i say managing your band six edition dr Esteban? i think you did <laughs> i just said it again that's crazy it's also available on kindle dr Esteban. yes enough of this business let's talk business business of music with dr david Laurie. i think this is a good idea and since this is a business uh show called music biz 101 and more let's talk about just um not specifics of course but how does a deal work with uh, getting a deal through a publisher to write a book compared to a record deal? Uh, there's a lot of similarities. In fact, uh, ironically, being a manager most of my career, when I first met my literary agent at CAA, he said, you are no longer the manager, you're the artist. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of people were passing on me, which I used to deal with with <laughs> my artist being passed down by a record company. Right. And... Uh, so there was a lot of similarities. It's uh, also right now uh, I'm back being a manager and I'm managing myself. And it's interesting <laughs> booking this upcoming tour I have for the book and dealing with the promoters uh, on the conversations. One time I'll be an artist and I'll be a manager and then I'll be the agent. So right. there's a lot of similarities. Right. Now, does it work uh, the same way that you get an advance and then uh, you're going to get a percentage of retail or? Yeah, negotiated the deal uh, the same way. Um, in fact, uh, I did get an advance. Uh, part of that advance, uh, I gave a percentage away to the writer uh, who spent two years writing it with me, mm -hmm. uh, Jim Irvin, who was at Mojo Magazine editorial for many years in the U.K., I, he was also with me the night I got the call that Jeff was disappeared mm -hmm. uh, in Dublin seeing another one of my artists and uh then we have a profit split of 50 50 after that mm -hmm. all right should we just for those of the uninitiated listening give a you know brief who was jeff buckley and why was jeff buckley so You're important start already well <laughs> well i would want to bring up uh that it's quite different than the deal for managing your band sixth edition because we decided to publish it ourselves Mm -hmm. And we went through what we considered a very strong American distributor, at least, at least. And uh, the deal works with that is that you get a percentage of the wholesale. Uh, we get a percentage of wholesale and we get an advance, too. And, of course, the advance has to be recouped 
before we start getting money. Right. So it's just a, it's a different way of doing it. We have a little more headaches because we basically had to pay for all the printing and all the um, editing and so on and so forth. But that was with the advance through Hal Leonard. So we really didn't have any out-of-pocket uh, you know, money that we had to put out for the printing and so on and so forth. But we did pay for all of that. And then that is part of the uh, recoupable money. And we don't see money until, um, obviously. We yeah, I use OPM, other people's money. <laughs> uh, right. It's been my saying for more than 30 years. Right. Uh, I have them paying for my publicists uh, here and abroad. And uh, they're paying all the printing, all the costs. And uh, so, yeah, and then we have a 50-50 split after that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, so now let's get to the good stuff. Well, the good stuff uh, is, is because we're going to talk about a great American artist, Jeff Buckley, and of course, who uh, suddenly died uh, on the date. It was May 29th, 1997. Mm-hmm. And the and book is coming out? May 29th, 2018, on the 21st anniversary. Yeah. Right. Great. Okay, so a little bit for our fans who probably were born... 1995 or less, you would think, right? 18 would be 2000. So, yes. So, let's talk a little bit about Jeff. Um, Nowhere in my career did I have someone that had an impact like he had, uh, particularly with the artist community. Uh, You can Google, you'll see Page and Plan, you'll see Elvis Costello, Bono. The list is endless. Bands like Muse, Coldplay, Radiohead, all were influenced by him, but uh, it was... Uh, every show there was always celebrities at it um, you know he had a five octave range looked like James Dean he had everything going for him women, women were passing out in the front row <laughs> um, and talking about a business standpoint it's one of the few times that I've heard this happen but uh, I had him off tour support uh, prior to that first album cycle mm-hmm. and what I mean by that is you get money from in this case Columbia Records to fund the tour and by the time we quit touring, he was actually making good money on the road with full production, trucks, full crew, uh, which is extremely rare in the music business. Mm-hmm. Was that his first major, major tour? Yeah. Yeah. That was his first one. But it lasted two and a half years because Jeff refused to do MTV videos. He didn't want his songs edited to go to radio, although he didn't really uh, write or record radio-friendly songs. Um, so it was one fan at a time, mm-hmm. and we started out with him solo, playing 100-seat rooms, 150, then we brought the band uh, through there when we released Grace, uh, the album Grace, and uh, by the end we were playing multiple theaters around the world, particularly internationally, where he was uh, the largest. Mm-hmm. So what about his personality hooked you, that you just said, I've got to manage this guy. Well, what's interesting is when I taught the grad program here, a student asked me a question I was never asked before. Mm-hmm. And the question was, how do you know to select an artist? And I thought about it for a minute. I have to assume that they know how to play their instrument and sing. What you can't do, and you hear people talk in the sports uh, world with quarterbacks, the it factor. And... Mm-hmm. <clears throat> The artist, when they walk in and the windows open up and the breeze comes Mm -hmm. through, there's an air about them. And I knew immediately with Jeff, and I write in the book, 
that I knew he was a star. Uh, I, I could see his, the innocence in him, the damaged innocence, I should say, um, because all artists have screws loose, and the more talented they are, the more screws that are loose. But also they have a lot of emotional pain that they, they go mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. to record or to uh, do what they do. So, so you're but, saying it's really beyond charisma. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go on. Well, I was just going to say that <laughs> that can be difficult because you can have a person um, who doesn't light up the room, but they're just a great introverted artist. Correct. And you, you, you have a bigger job to do, I think, as a manager, of course, because you have to get that what that is, that essence, and you have to get that to the audience. Well, and Jeff it, was one of the, uh, well, the only artists that I ever trusted 100% as in- instincts. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a saying, did you pack the parachute? Uh, he would set up on the you know, stage right instead of the center like most four-piece bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, he picked a guitar player that was an actor friend of his who'd never been in a band. And I was like, are you sure about these things? And it, we always said it was about jumping off a cliff and halfway down I'd go, did you pack the parachute? And he goes, I think so, because we never knew how hard the landing was going to be. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Well, here are two things about, you mentioned the sports analogy that I was just thinking about, you know, the quarterback with the it factor. On the other hand, uh, in, in baseball, because I know a lot about baseball, a lot of uh, when you're signing young, uh, you're spending like, let's say there's a baseball draft comes up in June and I'm the Kansas City Royals and I have one of the top picks and I'm going to spend $1.5 million on either a kid coming from high school or a kid who was just a junior in high school. So either way, it's an 18-year-old or maybe like a 20-year-old kid and I'm going to spend a lot of money on this kid. So I'm going to give him a lot of tests besides just can he play i also want to know is this kid psychologically does he have it together um what's he like with his girlfriend and his parents it's almost like doing this full background check Mm -hmm. um what a lot of teams do in sports is they also see the lineage they could see like the uh uh the manager of the yankees right now is this guy aaron boone Mm -hmm. whose brother brett played uh major league baseball as well as did aaron his father uh uh, uh, Boone, 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 Boone. His father was a catcher yeah. for the uh, Bob Boone was a catcher for the Phillies many years. Bob Boone's father was Ray Boone. So they're like one, two. That's three generations of baseball players who made it to the major league. So there's that sort of genetic lineage that works. Mm-hmm. With uh, Jeff Buckley, you actually had lineage because his father was in the industry. Um, so you knew almost genetic, or you could have thought genetically there is talent there. In addition to, um, did you know that, because he was an artist, so in the music world, artists are fragile human beings. So did you realize that you were dealing with somebody who wasn't, if you make a, if you're McDonald's and you make a burger, it's going to turn out the same every time. Every artist you manage is different and every day is In music, most of the time, the siblings or the, um, you know, whatever family member they are, they generally don't become successful if you look at history itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Zappas or the... Lenins. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, of course, those are tall orders. I didn't... I wasn't a fan of Tim Buckley. I couldn't have sung a song right. of his. Mm-hmm. I actually never heard any music of Jeff's, and I never saw him perform live before I took him on. Mm. And that's the only artist I'd never have done that with. Right. Um, there was a buzz on him. I was 
so busy booking the new music seminar in the day that I met him right afterwards, so I knew about the buzz. But um, for all indications, I was crazy to take it on because, A, I was co-managing with an attorney who had no experience, so I knew I was going to be doing 90% of the work for half the money. Um, He was so hyped up. In fact, when I first met Jeff, um, I actually had two meetings. The attorney canceled on me because I had clients fire him. And it was a running joke. I'd walk into the office and ask my assistant, did he call and cancel the meeting yet? <laughs> Columbia was insistent that he get a co-manager. And uh, I knew this. And so all the other managers turned him away for all those reasons. They didn't want to be involved. Um, he was 45 minutes late to our first meeting on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. When uh, George Stein, the attorney, left after about a half an hour... I threw my bio down and told him I had a pet peeve of being, people being late. And I said, don't wait too long to call me because I got better things to do. And I walked out on him. Mm-hmm. He chased me down St. Mark Street. It was a Sunday brunch time and said, you're the first guy that hasn't kissed my you know what. And I said, if I were you, I'd be worried because this business is going to chew you up and spit you out. And then when we went back in and started talking about music, he asked me to come back in. Uh, you know, he was talking about everything from a Pakistani Pakistani singers to Van Halen to he loved the metal bands and it was just all over the place uh so I said at that point I guess I better go listen to some music (laughs) (laughs) he had just recorded live at Cheney at that point so that's when I first heard him but I didn't hear him see him perform until the first date we went on solo date in Vancouver and the first few shows were not good he was talking, making jokes, didn't have a, a set list. People were yelling out for his father's songs, and he'd yell back at them. Mm-hmm. And at that point, after about the third song, the third show, I, I just saw, I kept dreaming about carrying his Fender amp on my back of a mountain. I didn't, I didn't know if it was going to work or not. All right. um, but it wasn't until we got to a drive going to San Francisco in the middle of the night that I put on an Allman Brothers board tape, and this is in the book, because I used to manage the Allman Brothers band, and I said, you're going to learn something out here that I can't teach you. And he said, what's that? I said, when Dickie Betts or Keith Richards puts on their guitar, it's like a gunslinger putting on their holster. It's all about attitude. you got to own the stage. You have to demand that they listen. Well, two years, fast forward two years later, he sold out two Olympias in Paris. The second night, Encore, he's surfing the crowd. They rip his shirt off. He's sweating. He comes running backstage, goes up the circle staircase, comes back down. He goes, attitude? And I said, now you got it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Very. Were, were you investing money all along, any of your personal money in in him? Not investing money, but investing your time, which is money. I mean, value that, right. anytime you take out a new artist, he'd already had the record advance paid, so I didn't do that. And then the only other money was the publishing deal, and I think it was $15,000 I got, and that was for the first probably two years Mm -hmm. is all all the money that I got off of him. Mm -hmm. So you're having to do other things. People didn't understand this. I have record company people, for example. They all, when they leave their jobs, like 80% of us have since, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, they would call me up, can I buy you lunch? They go, how did you do it all these years being a manager? Well, what people didn't understand, when I had the hottest ticket in town with Jeff Buckley, I had a band called New Potato Caboose doing Grateful Dead cover songs going up and down the East Coast 
making ten thousand yeah. dollars a night right. at universities. Right. So not the sexiest thing. Right. Uh, but you know, another time I had Ronan Tyne and the classical singer that sang at uh, Yankee Stadium, God Bless America. Right. Oh, yeah. I used to tell my staff, look, we have these other rock bands we're developing. They're the sexy things. Ronan isn't sexy, but Ronan makes us a lot of money every month because he mm-hmm. was playing all those private shows and events. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so you were making generally twenty percent. No, yeah. uh, in fact, I write this in the book. I was in L.A. with Jeff when George Stein came in, and he took it upon himself to lower commission from 20% to 15% in the negotiation. I went nuts. <laughs> Negotiate against himself. Y- y- well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, but it's in perpetuity, Dave. And I'm like, I don't care. I need to eat now. I have overhead, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and perpetuity doesn't mean anything. And eventually I settled the case, and, sure. and I don't make sure. a dime off Jeff Buckley yeah. and haven't for decades. But um, the point being is... Uh, artists will always negotiate you off the contract. It happens all the time. Yeah. Uh, so it's very rare that you have an artist-manager relationship like Tony had with uh, uh, Tom Petty or Landau with Springsteen, which is probably the most famous one. Mm-hmm. It's like a marriage. They they don't last. So, right, right. Um, so now I know I'm getting 7.5% instead of 10%. Because you're co doing, doing 90% of the work. Right. So I was not a happy camper. Right. Mm -hmm. So what happened on that uh, fateful day, night? Well, I was over in Ireland, Dublin, starting a tour with Cattell Kinnock, who I was managing, who who was friends with Jeff. And uh, she was starting her tour. She had a single out. It was on the radio called One Hell of a Life. Kind of ironic. Mm. Um, I was, uh, I got a call at my hotel, just about six o'clock in the morning, uh, the day of her first show, and they said he's missing. And I said, "Well, it was my assistant who, back in those days, the cell phones were those big bricks with antennas, yeah, right. right? So I didn't have one of those. Um, so they got me in the hotel room, woke me up. And when the phone's ringing at six o'clock in the morning, and you're a manager, it's never a good sign. Right, and that's some, some one time. Yeah. So it was still night in America. It was one o'clock in the morning. Right. And uh, Jack, my assistant, said, I'm going to put my phone up to his girlfriend's phone because they both had a line. And it was the tour manager. I could hear him screaming on the phone because of the helicopters in the background, which I didn't realize that's what it was at the time. And they said, he's missing. And I said, what do you mean he's missing? And I figured it out. Like you said, one in the morning, he was supposed to be rehearsing with the band. They'd just flown in that night uh, to start the next record. And uh, I just figured he was being Jeff, you know, he was just out, you know, block, like most artists, you know, they're right. just... And he was in Memphis? He was in Memphis. And uh, when they told me he went into the Mississippi, I literally dropped the phone. Mm. Dropped the phone. I couldn't believe it. Um, I then called Cattell. She started screaming. You know, uh, I basically sat there what seemed like three hours trying to figure out well, what the heck do you do, you know? There's no book written. Internet wasn't around then to figure out what to do. What saved my life was getting a call from Danny Goldberg, who I co-managed the Allman Brothers with. Danny's a legendary manager, and he called me every day for weeks, making sure myself and my family were okay, but more importantly, hooked me up with Janet Billing because they co-managed Kurt Cobain together. Mm. Uh, he said, you're part of a club you don't want to belong to. And yeah. uh, 
he said, you'll get that call one day. And sure enough, two years later, I got the call from Michael Hutchins' manager from down in Sydney. I'm sat, standing here and he's hanging. What do I do? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's pretty horrific, the stuff you have to go through, but it's it's like a military operation. You know, do I fly to Memphis now? No, I got to be here for Cattell. Uh, my wife was his promotion manager. Uh, we were married at the time, had our first child. Mm-hmm. Um, you're You're keeping everybody up all the time. So it dawned on me that I had to be on the ground. So I called the publicist, got him out of bed from Columbia in America, said, get in. We got to have a statement and make it clear that everything is no comment. You know, even my management office, I said, you know, here's what you're going to say. And it's basically, you know, uh, we'll take a message. There's no comment this time. Dave will call you when he when he has a chance. Um his father died of a drug overdose. And so yeah. my thinking was, did he die of a drug overdose? Was he drinking? Was he doing drugs? Um, all these things going, you don't want him compared to his father because we did everything not to compare him to his father. Yeah. Um, and then you had the people at Columbia. I started getting calls at 10 in the morning in New York that called a marketing meeting. So not only do I have my front in Ireland trying to keep Cattell up who wanted to cancel her old tour and was in tears, mm-hmm. Um, my wife, my family, my office, my other artists, because they all knew each other. And then you had, you know, Memphis to deal with. And then I'm dealing with Columbia Records, calling a marketing meeting. Mm-hmm. So it was like crazy. It was uh, mm-hmm. like everything was spinning out of control. Right. And you and this isn't in any book, nor is it any uh, part of your, well, you want to be a rock and roll manager. Right. Well, you got, you know, this is uh, chapter seven. That's just not there. So you relied, on, I'm sure, on people like Danny Goldberg and people who have their feet on the ground and have gone through a lot of hell, too, for advice. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was instrumental just mm-hmm. to have somebody to talk to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what, uh, what was determined eventually? Uh, well, what we did was the publicist and I, me more internationally, him domestically, we called all the big music publications and we said, look, don't run anything right now. Whatever the truth is, we'll tell you. Mm-hmm. We basically threw ourselves on, uh, you know, for Jeff. We, if, it, if he died of a drug overdose, we, t- we had to tell him. These mm-hmm. were our relationships. Mm-hmm. Well, Jim Irvin, who wrote the book with me, uh, did not write a thing, gave up profits because I told him this as an example. I said, whatever the truth is, I'll tell you. Uh, when the autopsy report came out, it said he had the equivalent of about a half a can of beer in him, and that mm-hmm. was it, no drugs whatsoever. <clears throat> but uh, the fact that people like Jim Irvin waited, uh, it's very rare mm-hmm. that people do that. Now, did they find him up or down river? Or? Here, <laughs> here's what's funny. Anybody who's been to Memphis, Bill Street's, just loaded with blues clubs, right? Sure. Well, Jeff floated up river and came out right at the end. Beale Street actually goes into the the river because uh-huh. that's where they load boats into. Right. He he actually was floated upstream and was there at Bill Street. <laughs> <It's> not <laughs> not right. physically possible, but yeah. Right. yeah. All right. Wow. But getting back to it hasn't been written before. Um, there's been a couple books on Buckley out, but the all they did was research, talk about his youth. Mm-hmm. Um, there's things that are wrong in it. Um, 
because I read them. I mean, you know, you used to flip to the back of the book and you see there's, you know, 30 pages with your name on it. You know, and you're right. like, I got to see what they're saying about me. Right. Um, but they didn't, there's eight other people that are involved in this book that were interviewed. And in your book, yeah, that didn't never talk before. So for 20 years, um, I would get a call like from the BBC or they would get calls and want to be interviewed and we'd all talk to each other and they'd call me and I'd, I'd say, no, I'm not doing anything. So we all turned down everything. I mm-hmm. did one BBC four radio interview uh, thing they did on Jeff's first trip to the UK uh, with a couple other people that uh, were in the or in my book. But they didn't have any connection to the subject matter. And so they couldn't really explain what was going on. And I, I figured I'd speak. I was in a lawsuit for about six years with the estate. They owed us money. Mm-hmm. And Jeff's last words to me going out the door, going down to Memphis two weeks before he died was, uh, don't let Sony get the music ever. He had dumped about 25 boxes. What I did as a manager, my wife used to hate this. It was very new concept at the time, especially for a new artist. It could be a photographer in a pit at a show. It could be doing MTV. It could be doing a radio show. Whatever it was, I got commercial rights. Everybody signed off. I had commercial and promotional rights for everything. So we had two and a half years of promotion that were in boxes. And he was subletting his place. He was eventually going to move to Memphis, so he brought all this stuff up two weeks before he died, mm-hmm. saying, I only trust you. Don't let Sony get this music. So Sony joined the lawsuit on the mother's side. I knew Sony owned the music, but, you know, I was feeling guilt. Why wasn't I there? Um, you know, not only do you lose your client, you lose your friend. Mm-hmm. So it's a double whammy. Who initiated this lawsuit? Did You, you sued I sued the estate because they owed you money. Then right. Sony... Gave the mom money to sue, countersue me okay. for all the music. I had all these diaries. I had everything. Um, when Jeff first disappeared, talk about common sense kicking in. I sent Jack Bookbinder, my assistant, down to his apartment because he used to record on used cassettes. And he just started raking everything into garbage bags. And then I called the studio in New York he was recording. I confiscated the masters there. I confiscated the masters in Memphis mm-hmm. and put put a guard in a hotel room until I got down there. In fact, uh, Sony called me up and said, do you have something you want to tell us? <laughs> you know, because yeah. I had confiscated all the music. But, uh, yeah, you just, uh, you, you go into a mode that you don't even know where this stuff, I, I, I talk about it in the book, it was almost like road signs kept coming down and planting themselves to direct me. It mm-hmm. was just raw instinct. Um, but, uh, yeah, so... About two years ago, I got a call from Rob Light at CAA, who runs Creative Artist, and we've been friends for years. He said, it's time for you to write the book. I want to read that book. (laughs) And it was uh, another woman that actually wanted to do a film and introduced me to a guy who offered me millions of dollars on the back end to do the film that got me to write it, and I had a false start with another writer until I found Jim. But... uh, it uh, that that kicked it off mm-hmm. so i walked out there and there was you know probably 15 20 boxes taped shut from the lawsuit i'd never opened them up and the first box i opened up had the death certificate and the police reports and all that stuff you don't even want to see and it's 
I was told to write the death chapter first. And as I told you, my wife was his promotion manager in Europe. So I sat on my back porch for three days, cried like a baby, mm-hmm. writing it because I realized that I'd never mourned. I just put everything in boxes and just, you know, emotionally just clamped it up because right. I was having to take care of everybody else. All right. All right. Can I go back to the lawsuit mm-hmm. for a sec? Because, so um, he died in 97. At what point did you decide I'm going to sue the estate for? Pretty quick. She was redoing deals. They were going to put out music. I was fired two months after he died. Right. Okay. Uh, shortly after the memorial. Um which, in hindsight, I'm glad because I decided I'd go in the marketing meetings and there'd be all these photos. So, for example, when a manager does a photo shoot, you get the artist to approve every photo they like. And there were red dots on it. And then what we do is he'd have a numbered deck of photos, one through however many, on the road, and I would have a copy of it. So that way when you're doing a commercial single or any kind of artwork for a poster, I'd say, what photo do you want to use? He'd go number 24. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I told the estate, I said, here's all these photos he approved. And she would say, I like that one. I go, but he didn't approve that one. Mm-hmm. Or it was a mix that he approved. And they go, oh, well, let's go in and remix it. Why? He approved it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as a manager, you're used to protecting your artist. And the hardest part was I couldn't protect him anymore. It was like, you know, somebody just punch him in the stomach every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting story of why I closed the case, we were over in, in England and my wife said, well, let me take you to the psychic. Now, I'd never been to a psychic. Jeff had a bracelet that I used to find on a floor in Sydney in a venue or a Paris hotel floor. And after about six times of this, he said, it's yours. You keep it. So I had it on. And it wasn't the psychic sign in London. It was rural community, little old lady in her house, you know, and I walk in. She says, you have any jewelry I can have? And I gave her the bracelet. She said, there's a Jeff or a John trying to get a hold of you. And I didn't give her any information. I just nodded my head. And during that course of the hour, she told me things only Jeff and I would know. Mm-hmm. At the end, she said, this is his bracelet, isn't it? And I said, yes. And she said, I don't know if this makes sense, but... He didn't mean for it to happen, but he didn't fight it. It's not your fault. I'm in a good place. It's okay to let everything go. Mm. And I went back, packed up all the music, took it up to the messenger center. Didn't even take it to Donnie Einer's office, the Mm. chairman at Sony. And then two months later, I'm at the Artemis Records Christmas party. I put on my coat. I go outside. There's this, uh, I see a falling star and a brush of wind, and I raise my hand to get a cab, and the bracelet was gone. Wow. Huh. <laughs> that's that's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I believe in psychics now. The right ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, 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 right. That's, a, that's a great story. And that was the first time I was able to listen to his music. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, people that, that were interviewed for the book, most of them change the channel when Hallelujah comes on. Uh-huh. They, they can't even listen to it. Right. And um, so we have a good segue here. Because she's asked, getting in the background going to play. I asked uh, Ashley to pull something up uh-huh. that we can play some of it, and Dave might want to comment. Uh, okay. So what do we have up there? Um, we could either play Hallelujah, Grace, Lover, You Should, Everything Here, So Real, Forget Now, or Last Goodbye. Uh, you can throw Hallelujah on. Okay. Okay, anything you want to say about this? Because she can then add it. Yeah, what, what was interesting about Hallelujah was that um, 
you know, obviously it was written by Leonard Cohen. Yes, of course. But most people think Jeff wrote it. Mm. And I remember being at the Royal Garden Hotel one day having breakfast in London, and it was the last tour Leonard was doing, and he was sitting at a table with Steve Berkowitz, who coincidentally was Jeff's a and guy at Columbia. Mm-hmm. And Steve waved, waved me over and said, I want to introduce you to Leonard Cohen. This is Jeff Buckley's manager, or was Jeff Buckley's manager. And he didn't look happy about it. (laughs) And I I don't know how true this is, but I've heard from some people that he was just not happy that people thought, you know, he wrote a classic song. Right. Um, I think it was Nick Cave did a version too. Mm -hmm. And what people don't understand about this song is Leonard wrote like 20 verses. It's like sick. And when Nick Cave wanted to do the song, he contacted Leonard and said, could you fax the verses over? And he said he came home later and there was like, you know, 60 sheets of paper on his floor. Oh, yeah. So uh, <clears throat> Jeff's version is actually different than Leonard's version. Mm-hmm. It's got a couple verses that are, there's a lost verse in there or something Jeff found. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So we'll hear a little of that. Tied you to her kitchen chair And she broke your throne And she cut your hair And from your lips You drew the hallelujah 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 Baby, I've been here before I've seen this room and I've walked this floor You know, I used to live alone before I knew you And I've seen your flag on the marble arch And love is not a victory march It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah Hallelujah
Maybe there's a God above But all I've ever learned from love Was how to shoot somebody who And it's not a cry that you hear at night It's not somebody who's seen the light It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah 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 Are you going to play it now? No, we heard it now. Oh. All right, so let's go to a different subject. <laughs> so now you're asking yeah. her to do lots of editing during <laughs> lots. the show. I mean, lots of ten, little, 10 hours of edits. Uh, right. Is it going to be okay to do it that way? Yeah. Apparently it is. Okay. So can, can we go back? To, we didn't finish the lawsuit, though. So, so Okay, well, so that you, was great. Now, it, okay, great. Yeah, so, so, with the, so the, after you saw the psychic... Then you decided to, you dropped a lawsuit with Sony and the estate? I went up. In fact, George Stein and I don't talk, haven't talked since that day. And I sat in there and uh, he jumped up. He goes, I'm not settling. I broke Jeff Buckley. And I said, no, you didn't. I said, Jeff Buckley broke Jeff Buckley. You know, Um, you will never see a lot of photos with me with artists because I always said the artist comes first. The artist and the music comes first. Um, A lot of managers aren't that way. So he started screaming, saying, you got the job at, at Mercury Records, you're head of international, I haven't gotten anything off Buckley. Well, I was doing all the work. I was a face. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember when we were doing credits, Jeff would handwrite Dave Laurie and George Stein. I'd cross it out and put George Stein, Dave Laurie, because I don't have an ego, and he was there first. And Jeff kept, you know, crossing it out. <laughs> um, in fact, you know, he was very upset when the money started coming in that I was he saw the checks and he said, this is not fair. But anyway, so I said, I'm settling and I walked out of the meeting. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, my attorney was kicking me under the table going, you know, cause I was so angry at George, but it wasn't what Jeff was about. You know, I was dealing with the marketing issues. Now you're dealing with the lawsuits. Um, it's just, nobody wins, but the attorneys, I think I made probably, I don't know how many tens of thousands of dollars. My legal bill was like $10,000 under what I got. Mm-hmm. So I painted my house and called it a day for six years worth of torture. <laughs> you know, right. yeah, sure. And that's one thing, because this is a business show. Lawsuits are so common in the music industry. I've never lost a lawsuit, but I've lost a ton of money. Mm-hmm. I, I've, if I've been sued once, I've been sued over 30 times. Because what happens is, and that's why you have to have your companies in place, 
because if somebody goes after the artist or goes after a crew at a live show or a promoter, they sue everybody. Mm-hmm. So basically, you have to have money set aside. My wife used to hate it. Mm-hmm. I say, you know, there's $50,000, set it aside for the year for the attorney. But, mm-hmm. you know, they're the only ones that win. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. So what was your favorite chapter in writing the book? Probably the introduction, to be honest with you, uh-huh. um, because it, it started out as a foreword. And um, that's the one that flowed out the most, the easiest. But I think it's more of a broader question. What I enjoyed most about it, and, and Dr. You and I, have been in this business for decades, right? Mm-hmm. Is understanding that A, it's a young person's game. B, the young people have to reinvent the business like we did back in the 80s with the new music seminar and you know with the live music scene in New York and I put flavors of that in there because that's when punk was starting, mm-hmm. hip hop was starting. It, it'll never happen again because musicians can't afford to live in New York City right. and neither can the venues. But it was that whole ride of oh my gosh, did we have fun. <laughs> you know, yeah, it was a wild, wild west. Yeah. And everything now is like, no, we do it this way, we do it that way. Interestingly enough, and, and again, because this is a business show, I was on the phone with my publicists and all the promoters. We spent like three days calling all of them for the upcoming tour. And I see their email alerts going out because I've got a Google search for my name and, you know, I see those. And the tickets were slow selling, which most of these venues are anyway. Um, but I told them, I said, National Record Store Week's next week. I backdoored and gave the head of National Record Day uh, some information from a GLR radio show in London to release something on Buckley because I wanted the awareness to come up on Buckley. Well, they did release something, but it's live at Chenet on vinyl for next week. I mean, for Record Store Week. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I said, put the poster I designed up in the independent stores. Here's a list of the independent stores all over the world that are involved. Mm -hmm. And they said, oh, that's a good idea. Well, kids at home, Hmm. you can email all you want, (laughs) but I can delete that. You can't delete my poster sitting at the front door when you walk in. Uh So you have to do old school and new school. You just can't do one or the other. Good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good point. What's also easy for, especially DIY artists, to feel like they're busy, to feel like they're doing something by saying, okay, today I can go to bed feeling good because I sent out 25 emails to venues. But that doesn't mean, again, that they actually picked up the phone and called the venue or got in the car and drove to the venue and did those extra steps to seal the deal that at least they know I exist. People work with who they like, Mm -hmm. okay? And... I remember when I ran international at, at Mercury Records back in the late 90s, my finance guy said, wow, you're going over to Japan and Asia again? And I said, you can't fax a handshake. Yeah. And particularly with a lot of nationalities, there's a trust that you have to build up, particularly with the Japanese or the Asian uh, culture. But it goes for anywhere. If I look you in the eye and shake your hand and we go out and we break bread and whatever, we get to know each other as people. So it makes doing business on the phone or through an email a lot lot easier. Mm -hmm. And it's always been considered a relationships business. And I think the culture coming up, you know, you mentioned the 90s. So now we're in the 20 years later, 25 years later, we're in the the getting closer to the 2020s. 
um, that culture has been raised on non-social interaction face-to-face. They're being raised on more phone, more, not even email, but more Snapchat, texted, that kind of thing. So it's not face-to-face. Those students or those young people coming up who have the skills to be able to shake the hand or to be aware that I should drive down or fly over and do those things that you're talking about. I think those are the people who are going to be two steps ahead of everybody else because they're going to be aware of, I have to physically say hello. Well, it's not only that. What used to aggravate me, when the emails started happening in the mid-90s, and I was running international, I was responsible for over 300 artists outside the domestic U.S. that were on our label. I was copied on everything because it was a CYA cover, your, you know what. Mm -hmm. And I used to get so angry at my staff, and I say, go pick up a phone and call them instead of all these emails going back and forth. You can't get creative and bounce ideas off each other if you don't meet. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. Right. Now, I'm just not being a dinosaur, but I'm a dinosaur, (laughs) is that when these, when this um, generation of people give the helm to the people that were brought up on Instagram and so on, are all those relationships going to be through the phone and not the handshake that we, that we're talking about here that we all had? Question. Yeah, I think it'll still be a. I think it'll be a hybrid. I think it will definitely evolve. But uh, my point is that you're you're still going to have a mix sure. of old school people running yeah. things for twenty years or whatever. Right. So you're still going to have people who want to shake a hand mm-hmm. or meet mm-hmm. some. I was talking to a drummer uh, the other day who is a performance major here at the university. And I was saying, so when you go, and he gigs, does lots of gigs. When you go to the gig, do you just do the gig and leave? And that's what he does. And I mm-hmm. said. When you go to these gigs, you should say hello, find out who booked this gig on behalf of your band and meet that person at the club and just introduce yourself. Absolutely. Every time you go and keep saying hello, because one day you're going to need to book that for yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, You should talk to the person in the band who's booking these gigs so you can learn how to do it to protect yourself and to see you know how to do these things. But every time you go somewhere, say hello and network. When I was a tour manager, I used to, it could be an arena, it could have been a club. I went to everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, including the bartenders and everybody. Because what happens is if there's a date that gets open and the person that books it books that group and you're in that group, you want everybody in that venue to uh, say, oh, we like him a lot mm-hmm. or them a lot. You know, buy a coffee for the sound guy when you show up. You know, if you're right. the opening act saying, hey, can I go get you a cup of coffee? Mm-hmm. You know, it's 50 cents or a dollar, whatever, right. $2. And then the uh, bartender, I would always go up and tip him mm-hmm. before I even ordered the first drink because right. I knew that when the crowd came in, I could get my drink faster. Yeah. I could just stand on the end of the bar. Right. So it was kind of a selfish thing. Right. But still, well, a good point of that um, on Instagram just Spoken today. like a true alcoholic, right? <laughs> you have, um, on Instagram today, I uh, did a repost of something that actually Ashley put up a couple weeks ago we had uh daryl mcdaniels from run dmc perform here at this big 80s show reproduced we produced and we asked him to perform for us at no charge which he did very willingly and very gracefully and um, this year i i he's a big comic book fan i found in the, my house at some point somebody giving me this kind of cool captain america comic i'm not a comic book book fan so i said let me give this to him just as something to give and Ashley told me that he actually really was in love with this comic book. 
and he was gu- uh, was he gushing about it or am I overdoing it? No, he was gushing. He was like gushing about this comic, and she took a picture of it. Mm-hmm. So I posted on the Instagram today, just saying, "Give to get. Don't be afraid to like do that." Mm-hmm. I gave him a gift as as a thank you, and he at the end of the show said, "I want to come back. I want to talk to your classes. I want to mm-hmm. do these sh- more of these shows, that kind of stuff." So exactly what you're saying, it's building that relationship and not just taking, 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 thinking about what's in it for both of us. How, what can I do for you? Right. Yeah. Uh, a DMC, you know, when he first, I'm thinking back now, I don't know if I know, told you the story in the nineties, somebody found him that he was living in Wayne, New Jersey. So I get a call from, I guess, somebody from student government said, we'd like you to interview him. He's coming in. So I didn't, you know, I knew who he was, but I didn't know him at all. So, uh, they called me and I went over. It was an evening. So I sat down with them. I looked them in the eye and they turned on the mics. I said, Let's get one thing straight. I said, Muhammad Ali, the first great modern rapper. And he said, Absolutely. And from that minute on, he was a, <laughs> he was a friend of the whole, you know, the whole university. Oh, that's Actually, great. from that minute on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's funny. That's, that's really good. Um, can we go back for a second to the revenue streams you had as a manager? Because you mentioned when. Uh, when when Jeff uh, died, you had the the dead cover band. What were they called? The potato what? New potato caboose. The new po- new potato caboose. Is that based upon a well, Grateful Dead song or something? Well, or? they used to do Grateful Dead covers. They were doing original material at the time. Uh huh. And but uh, when Jeff started making money, that band broke up because RCA Records signed them, and you know they were selling at uh, clubs like Wetlands, which was a popular place in mm-hmm. New York City, mm-hmm. and these uh, colleges and universities. They signed them, but then they tried to change them, and they wanted a hit record. They should have just put the band in and recorded live and get them back on the road, but they kept them off the road for like a year and a half, and it uh, hurt the band, so they eventually broke up. So I wasn't managing them at that time, but live was always where the money was. Um, You very seldom, unless you sold millions of records, did you make anything off the records. You'd make them off the mechanical uh, licenses off that, uh, but you know, publishing, you know, licensing, but a lot of artists back when I was managing Jeff Buckley did not want their songs used in commercials or in movies. I mean, that was thought of as you're not credible. Selling out. Yeah. Right. So we turned down some crazy stuff. I turned down $50,000 for the show Homicide. Mm-hmm. They came back four different times. They started at 15,000 and then the agent, I, I, when I went through all my boxes of stuff, this is how you remember stuff, and I, I'd see a fax. He goes, don't shoot the messenger, but they want me to, you know, here's another offer. Um, he, We turned down, the mirror has two faces, Barbara Streisand. They wanted him to be the young uh, actor in it. They offered him hundreds of thousands of dollars. We've turned down the Democratic National Convention. We turned down everything. Uh, it was... There was an old show called Happy Days that you might have seen. Sure. Managing Jeff because we turned down everything was like Fonzie on the show going, I'm so, z- z-. he couldn't say I'm sorry, right? right yeah. Well, it was me going, as a manager, you were so used to saying yes to stuff or just get that stuff to come across your desk. But we turned down everything. So the only revenue stream from for Jeff was because the advances were paid on the publishing and the record side was get as much tour support as possible, get him off tour support, and then towards the end, we made it off the touring and the merchandising. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, um, okay, so, but for Ronan, 
for example, Ronan Tynan, yeah. that was, um, you were making, that was also mostly from live performances as Correct. well. Correct, yeah. Okay. Um, what other groups, did you, you mentioned a whole bunch of other groups you were managing at the same time. Well, the Allman Brothers, uh, you know, Duncan Sheik, Courtney, I mean, all I used to get the artists that um, they would say, and most of the artists you would never have heard of, they lived in Sweden or Ireland or Australia, uh, and they were big in European markets, Australia, Japan. Um, and I, it, to me, it was a lifestyle thing because I, I was always traveling internationally. So, and the markets are not regional like America and Germany, so you could break an artist fairly simple, you know, because everything was national in the other co- countries. Um, but I was the guy that said, oh, you can't get it on the radio? Give it to Dave. He'll get a million out of it worldwide. Mm-hmm. Literally. I said, why can't somebody ship, give me Whitney Houston and let me ship five million, you know? Right. But, uh, yeah, it, uh, it was mostly road. And, you know, that's where it is today, too, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you go from commissioning 20% of a $16 CD to 20% of a nine-cent stream, and that's <laughs> if they pay for it, mm-hmm. uh, it's a big jump in cash flow. Yeah. Well, I had done, uh, that was one of my pet researching that I did through about 2011, then when we didn't, retail didn't mean anything anymore. But I had proven through the, Nash, the uh, Nielsen statistics that the... That, that artists never made money selling records. No. Unless you were Britney or whomever, you never made money. And I think it was Radiohead that first sort of figured that out pretty statistically, and they started, like, within rainbows, pay what you want, and started all these different models that started coming right. out. Because they said, you know, as Dave and I talk about in class now, use, that, use your music really as another piece of merch. That's the other reason with... Uh you know, settling for on Jeff Buckley, um, there would have been advance monies to get a hold of. Um, the estate went on a rant saying that all these people had their hands in her pocket, managers, stuff like that. That's why mm-hmm. I make it very clear in the book and in the interviews I'm doing. I My last check from Jeff Buckley was the lawsuit when I got paid and I dropped it. Um, it just, uh, it's almost like you got blood on your hands, you know? But, yeah. With the advances, I used to walk into when I used to I used to negotiate my deals on my own. Then I would give them to an attorney and say, "Here, this is what we agreed on. Put it together." Mm-hmm. Um, and I used to laugh at a head of business affairs at a light record company telling me, "Well, I don't know if we can give you all that. Why don't we give you this, and then you can make that?" I said, "No, because this is the only money I'm going to get. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> so mm-hmm. we're getting it now." <laughs> yeah. Right. Interesting. So should we wrap this up? Yeah, yeah, we... because we're at about a minute left. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's been great. We could talk all day. Yeah. So the book is called Jeff Buckley from, from Hallelujah. Hallelujah to the Last Goodbye, which are two of his songs. Coming out May 29th. Yep. Uh, you, you can go to jeffbuckleythebook.com and you can find interview footage with me. Uh, there's excerpts from the book and also the tour dates that start June 1st in Philadelphia. I'm actually going to music venues. Uh, and doing Q&A with the fans. It's an hour and a half, no intermission. And then afterwards doing book signings. And uh, then for we're running contests for people to come meet me beforehand. And, uh, you know, you can also go to a place like pledgemusic.com and get uh, two tickets, the book, uh, VIP laminate, et cetera. Um, or you can go to Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, all the usual places. Great. Okay. Great. And uh, we've read excerpts from the book. 
and it really is excellent. And if you're mm-hmm. into music, if you're into Jeff Buckley, if you're in, you are into the business, if you're into New York City in the 90s. And, a lot of it's that look between the yeah. artist-manager relationship. So mm-hmm. I wanted people to pull the curtain back and see what you go through, the highs, the lows, the fights, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Um, good. So we right, great. want, yeah, Dave Laurie, we want to thank you. Let's clap for Dave oh, Laurie. As always. Thank you. Clapping for Dave Laurie. It's very good to have you. Uh, Ashley Weltner, who's paying no attention to us right now because somebody's looking at her. Ashley Weltner, thank you very much for being here and paying no attention. Dr. Stabon, should we thank you? Why don't we thank you? And you? also my co-host. Me. Yeah, sorry. Ah, sorry. That's right. I always get confused of who that person is. Yes. So we want to thank you. And as you're listening to this, there is uh, another show coming up May. This is what? May 23rd. The show airs May 30th. And then all summer long, we we'll, uh, we were at, this is future tense. We were at music the Music Biz Convention in Nashville uh, two weeks ago. And um, as you listen, you're going to hear, we're going to Music Biz in Nashville. We're going to record shows in Nashville, they're going to air all summer here on Brave New Radio and also the on our new shows. Podcast. Yes, new shows all summer. No long. reruns. Third year in a row that we're doing this. So no reruns. Nice. So, yes. So thank you, everybody. At the end of every show, we do not say hello. How silly would that be, Ashley Weltner? She nods because she knows that'd be almost stupid. So at the end of every show, instead, we say adios. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. Say, Dave, what do Paul Sinclair from Atlantic, Tom Hefter from Ticketmaster, Rosie Lopez from Tommy Boy, and Heather Ellis from Pandora all have in common? They're all bigwigs in the music and entertainment industry, Esteban. And? They all hate warm beer. And? They've all been guests on the Music Biz 101 and more radio show at 8 o'clock on Wednesday nights. Bingo. If you want to learn more about the music and entertainment biz, tweet in a question and tune in every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock to Music Music Biz 101 101 and more on Brave New Radio. Radio.